you know, it's interesting because we have this account 2,000 years ago, a baby being born, angels singing, shepherds getting the message, this message of a Savior being born, glory to God in the highest, peace on earth, God's good will to men. And we've heard it so many times, and people have been exposed to it all throughout the world, and I don't think there's any doubt or really substantial denial that a baby named Jesus was born in Bethlehem about 2,000 years ago, that he lived, that he walked on the earth, that he died in Jerusalem on a cross. Many substantiate and witness that he rose again. The Bible certainly has affirmed it throughout the years. Jesus Christ, that name, which is praised and slandered at the same time, Jesus Christ is the most well-known and most controversial figure in all of human history. There's nobody who engenders greater debate, greater opinion, greater faith, greater controversy than Jesus Christ. And he's at the center of faith, literally this morning for billions of people throughout history for many more billions who have trusted him and put their confidence in him. And at the same time, he's also rejected by many people. He is also um, denied and ridiculed and denounced. People have no time for him. People say they don't believe in him, that there could possibly be uh, some kind of personal God who would go to this extent, who would send uh, himself to take on human flesh. That God, if he exists, would never do that. I think people really, it's not the fact that they can't believe that. It's that if Jesus really came, it means a spiritual decision for them. And they really don't want to face that. So it's easier to deny what we don't know and what we can dismiss than to actually face the reality of what his coming means. Because if Jesus is who he said he was, and if he really came to do what he said he did, then every single person who's ever lived and will ever live is completely accountable to God. If Jesus is real, if Jesus really did come, then everybody must either reject his offer of salvation or repent and trust in Christ as Savior. Now, Jesus was very clear about his purpose. He was very clear about why he came. And we've looked at that over the last couple of weeks. And what we're going to see this morning in our text is, is so simple and so awesome, but it also is what offends so many people. So if you haven't already, let's take our Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 18. And we're going to focus just in our short time in study this morning on his statement first, which is in verse 11, and then we're going to go back just for a few minutes into the context to understand why he said it and how it applies to us. Let's start in verse 1 and just get some context here, but the key phrase again is going to be in verse 11. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and said, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called a child to himself and set him before them and said, Truly I say to you, Unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. 
Whoever there, whoever then humbles himself as this child, he's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks, for it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come. But woe to the man through whom the stumbling blocks come. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than to have two hands or two feet and be cast in the eternal fire. If your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out and throw it from you. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be cast in the fiery hell. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you then that their angels in heaven continually see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Here's the key phrase. For the Son of Man has come to save that which is lost. Why did Jesus come? Why do we drive through the snow and come to church and celebrate this morning that he was born as a child? That the Son of God literally took on a human body and came and lived among us. Why did he do that? Well, Jesus says that he came because he was coming to save that which is lost. Now, there are two components to that. First of all, that he came to save people. The Greek word here means to be rescued from destruction. So in this case, the only possible way we can read that, the only possible way we can interpret that, is that he came to try to deliver us and to try to rescue us from the penalty of sin, which is the result of, uh, which results in spiritual death. He came to try to deliver us, to try to rescue from us, to offer salvation for that. Now, if we were not uh, all sentenced to experience that spiritual destruction, then there's no reason for him to come. If that wasn't our condition, if that wasn't our, our, our uh, curse on our life, if we were able to save ourselves from the sentence or somehow work around it or somehow do enough to be delivered from it, then Christ wouldn't have bothered. So we have one of two choices. Either this destruction that he says he came to save us from is a complete farce. Either it's, it's ridiculous and not real and we don't have to worry about it and we're completely fine. Either that destruction is a farce or it is real and we need salvation from it. So Jesus said, I came to save you. I came to rescue you from destruction. The second thing you see in verse 11 is he says, I came to save that which is lost. Now, this is where so many people this morning get offended. This is where so many people just cannot stand the thought of Jesus to the point now that schools are taking references to Christ out of classic Christmas carols and people are not saying Merry Christmas and all the other things we see that we get a little annoyed by. This is why people are so offended because People don't want to be told they're lost. And they don't want to be told they're lost because it implies failure on their parts. And as humans, we simply do not want to accept that. Even since Adam and Eve sinned, the biggest problem that mankind has had is that we believe we're self-sufficient and we don't ever want to be told we're wrong. 
And that mindset comes straight from the devil who uh, who now has made it so ingrained in culture's thinking that man has become ultra-sensitive. The devil rebelled against God. He was in heaven. He decided, I don't want to serve God anymore. I want to be God. You can't tell me what to do. You can't treat me this way. You, you, I, I'm going to be my own. I'm going to be self-sufficient. And I'm going to, to try to usurp God. And God said, you can't usurp me. I'm God. You're not. Get out of heaven. And since the devil left heaven, since he's become a demon who's determined to spread evil all throughout the world, he now has said to man, hey, same thought. You need to be self-sufficient, independent of God, and you need to do your own thing. And because that now has become so ingrained, we have become so, so very sensitive to any criticism, any thought of failure, and a reality that we're not wonderful. So little league kids can't have a score in their game because nobody can lose. And parents are told, don't discipline your kids because if you do and they get upset, it might hurt their self-esteem and they're fragile and we don't want to hurt them. Even socialistic philosophy is taking hold and being more widely accepted. And we're arguing that we have to punish and take from those who've worked hard and achieved to give to those who haven't because we don't want them to feel bad about themselves. We now live in a culture where no one can be told they're wrong unless they believe in the Bible. Unless they believe in Jesus. Of course, the irony of saying that we're wrong in a culture that says you can't say anybody is wrong is completely lost on our critics. And the double standard would be laughable if it weren't so threatening to our ability now to state our convictions and defend what the Bible says. And what we have seen this week is just a tip of the iceberg, the, the downward trend to reject anything that offends anybody in sin, especially when the rationale comes from the Bible, is only going to get far more rapidly, progressively worse than we think. And we'll be stunned by the hypocrisy, but we'll also be stunned by the arrogance and the condescension that is going to be much more pronounced. Now, the Lord knows this. He's been watching it since the Garden of Eden. And he saw it with Noah and with Joseph and with Elijah and with David and with Daniel and so many others because it's the effect of sin. And more than anyone, Jesus experienced it. Jesus knew ridicule. Jesus knew rejection, which brings us back to the statement, if you look back at verse 11, as to why he came. Here's how he explains it. In the face of the knowledge that mankind would reject the reality that's lost, in the face of the knowledge that man had no desire to admit its failure and and was not calling out for salvation to God, and based on the horrible track record of the nation of Israel, who God said, I'm going to choose you, I'm going to favor you, I'm going to lead you, I'm going to bless you, I'm going to help you, and they just turned around and said, we want nothing to do with you, we're going to reject you, we're going to do our own thing. In the face of all that, the fact that Jesus came for this reason shows the depth of God's love and mercy. Everything we did would have made it easy for Jesus to say, forget it, you're on your own. 
Have fun trying to save yourselves. Have fun trying to, to earn your salvation. Especially when, when you, you have nothing in you that is holy. But notice that's what God sa- it's not what God says. Look back at verse 11. He says, I came to save that which is lost. In another passage over in Luke 19, he tells Zacchaeus, I came to seek and to save that which is lost. The word seek is interesting because it says that God took the initiative. God didn't respond to our calls. God came when we were yet sinners, when we wanted nothing to do with him. And he sought us. We didn't seek him. He sought us. He didn't wait for us to reach out because the human heart is so corrupt and we want nothing to do with him. And we're so far from God in our sin that we never would have said, God, help us. So God says, I'm not going to wait for you. I'm going to reach out and come and seek you. That's why as his church and as his ambassadors, our mission is to go seek those who don't know Christ, not for wait for them to seek us. We're never told, sit in the church And design it so people will seek you. We're told, go into the world and preach the gospel and make disciples. Go seek like I've sought. The fact is, Jesus had to seek us. Because we're so lost. All throughout history, we've proven that. Even though there have been many who have tried to dismiss the thought of God by obtaining power and by gaining knowledge, and by making advances in how we live. Let's assume this morning, just for the sake of argument, that the narrative that, that society has created is true. Let's assume that the world is billions and billions and billions of years old, and that man evolved from almost nothing to where we are today. If If we take that narrative... What mankind has accomplished is incredibly uh, impressive. That we would go from cavemen to to people traveling the world using iPhones. That, That we would make progress in science and technology and medicine and education and language. If you look at it that way, it's hard not to see the rationale for man to elevate himself and to say we are an amazing species that doesn't need God, especially a God who tells us that we're lost because look at what we've done. Now, again, take that argument just for a face value for a moment and let's say that that's true. Isn't it interesting with all the advances in human culture and the belief that we're far more civilized and intelligent than past generations. Isn't it amazing that people still kill each other? And that dictators still want to control the world. And marriages still divide. And people are still cruel and nasty. And there's less peace in the world than ever before. We are so proud of ourselves for what we have accomplished. But our problems haven't changed one bit. In fact, they've gotten worse. And every day we prove what Jesus said. We're lost. Now, the opposite of lost is found. If we're not lost, then we're found. But I don't think we can look at culture in America or in the state of the world and say that we're found 
If we really want to be honest and really look within, all we see is sin and confusion and some kind of weird pride in both. There's no peace. There's no joy. There's no contentment either by the ones in control or the ones who are controlling. The economy of the world's upside down. Nobody has stability. Nobody can say this is the answer. Nobody knows tomorrow if their money will be worth anything. More than ever before, there's a loss of freedom and personal rights. Everything and everyone is under constant surveillance. And that's supposed to make us feel secure, but I don't know about you, it makes me just feel kind of watched and threatened. The Middle East is a powder keg. It's about to explode. Everyone has either abandoned Israel or is trying to get rid of them. And Israel's not going to be moved because of God's promise to them, but very few people seem to understand that. Throughout the world, there's a rise in violence. There's a rise in crime. There's a rise in terrorism. There's really not one safe place in the world anymore. You can be in a school, a church, a mall, an office building, and that safety can all change in a moment. Entertainment has been so degraded that even kids' programs have agendas, and and our kids and our teens are bombarded with awful images that desensitize their minds and their hearts. Interestingly, I was in a video store the other day, and I was just kind of poking around, and, and the clerk engaged me, and he said, how old are your kids? I said, 14, 13, and 8. He said, I got some games for you. They would love them. They're called Halo and Call of Duty Ghosts. And I went home and I looked them up because I'm pretty familiar with the games, but I went and looked them up. Both are rated M, mature, for extreme violence, gore, and profanity. And if played online, quote, can expose the player to foul, sadistic language, threats of sexual violence, and cyberbullying. That's the review of the secular reviewer. He says... In response, the Halo series, though, has been rated far too harshly by the rating systems, and he recommended it for kids 10 and above. The desensitization. I told the guy, my kid is eight. He said, this is a great game for your kid. It's no surprise that morality is rapidly changing. Fifteen states in the United States now allow gay marriage. Belgium allows child euthanasia. Ethnic cleansing is taking place in Darfur and South Sudan and in Syria and all throughout the world. We're not found. Jesus said, I came to save that which is lost. I came to rescue you from this destruction by entering the world as a baby. Now, look back at verses 1 to 10, because that method shows the humility of his mercy. And it shows the mindset that he tells us we have to have in order to be saved. If you go back at verse 1, the disciples are still trying to figure out who's going to be the most prominent one in heaven. And Jesus' response to this takes them off guard. He calls a little child over and he says, look, you guys are thinking the wrong way. You guys are promoting yourselves and elevating yourselves. And what can I do to be more prominent? What can I do to get God's favor? And he says, you need to be like this child. You need to humble yourself and turn from what you're doing. Because if you don't, 
there's no way to be saved. See, the disciples were emphasizing what gets man in trouble. What gets man in trouble is our pride. And pride always leads us down the wrong path. And when we're on the wrong path, it's easy to get lost because there's no sense of direction. If you got stuck in a desert today with no scenery, no uh, no uh, water, no trees, no anything, and it was midday, you would stand there and go, I have no way which way is east. I have no idea. Or if you were out in a blizzard today and you couldn't see five feet in front of you and somebody said, I want you to drive to Kenosha, you'd go, I, I don't know even where I am, let alone how to get to Kenosha. See, when we're lost, there's no sense of direction. And when there's no sense of direction, we're lost. And that's what sin does to our hearts and our minds. It distorts our understanding and it puts us in the wrong direction. And it even happens to us as believers. It happens to us as believers when we stop studying God's word and we stop praying and we stop listening to the conviction of the spirit and we start to drift back into our old life or maybe we never left it and we continue to have a hand in it and it confuses us and, and, and we don't understand what God's doing or what God's saying or we don't care about it and, and we're a believer. We, we gave our life to Christ and we committed ourselves and we go to church but but we're not living for the Lord. And we wonder why there's no joy. And we wonder why God is not working in our lives and why God doesn't seem near us. Jesus says, look at it, verse 1. You have the attitude of a child. I imagine this was a small child. A child that hadn't reached the age of starting to argue and starting to rebel and starting to refuse to say I'm wrong. You know that age, right, parents? And they're still about three or four, and they're still humble, and they still are dependent, and they still feel shame when they've done the wrong thing, rather than defiance, like, get out of my face. Jesus pulls over a small child, and he says, you need to be like this. You need to be like this child. Not too proud to admit its failure. Recognizing that if you act a certain way, it has consequences. He says, if you will take this posture, he's speaking to his disciples. He's not speaking to people that have never heard of Jesus. He's not speaking to people that are in rebellion against God. He's speaking to his disciples. And he says, you have to take this posture, this attitude of turning from what is wrong, what is centered in you, what is centered in pride, and you need to be humble like this child. And this is not a temporary decision. This is not something we put on for a little while so we feel good or we look good. He says, you've got to put this on permanently. And the heart of why we have to do this, to draw to conclusion, is because of what Jesus tells us in the next section. He says, you need to understand how dangerous the world's influence is. Listen, we're only going to see this more in 2014. We are only going to see this more in 2014. Look at what he says, starting in verse 7. He says, there are massive stumbling blocks that the world sets before all people. And he says, 
that these obstacles are so severe and so damaging that it would be better to suffer physically than to be influenced and corrupted by them spiritually. Now, because Jesus is saying this, we need to stop and think for a minute. We need to say to ourselves, well, how does this apply to me? Because he's saying this is very, very serious and that it threatens my spiritual health and my spiritual maturity. And he says the really the difference between spending eternity in hell or spending it in heaven is whether we are willing to resist the stumbling blocks and trust in Christ. I'm not sure there's ever been a time in human history and my perspective is limited where the stumbling blocks are more powerful and more pervasive to the point that it is now tugging at Christians and compelling us to compromise and to give in our convictions because the appeal to conform is so strong and the criticism is so prevalent. Jesus says, look, these are inevitable. They're going to come. I'm telling you now, you're going to face these. And you literally are going to have to make intentional, life-altering decisions to fight them and walk in holiness. Because for the believer, there's no other option. There's no way Jesus would say, look, if you are struggling with lust, it would be better to poke out your eye than to continue to look at that because that will degrade you and drive you away from me. It would be better to be deformed and be holy than to be whole and impure. Jesus wouldn't just say that. He's not just joking around. It's not like, hey, I'll be really melodramatic here. The disciples aren't getting it. So let me be really, really extreme. Guys, it'd be better for you to poke your eye out than to lust. This is not hyperbole. This is how serious it is for us. This is how serious the standards are going to be for us in the coming year. As believers who are facing massive stumbling blocks, this is not a suggestion. This is a requirement. Now, thankfully, he gives us his Holy Spirit to change our desires. And thankfully, he gives us doors of escape every time there is temptation. But notice what it takes. Go back to verse 2. We're going to conclude. It takes the humility and faith of a child for us to yield to his conviction and leading and surrender our will to him. And that leads to the final argument of the enemy. When the enemy hears that, he says, all right, this is my this is my last stand. I'm going to convince people that Jesus isn't worth giving their lives to. So here's the argument that the devil makes. Wow, that's pretty extreme what Rhodes just said. Jesus has taken this to a very high level. God's expectations for you and how you should live are way too demanding. And how can you know that he doesn't want to just make you his slave and order you around for the rest of life? You know, you would have a lot more freedom with me. You get to do what you want. You get to make the decisions you want. You get to be your own boss. Listen, did you hear what he just said about about the standard when you face those stumbling blocks? You sure you want to do that? Because I'm telling you, that sounds like bondage to me. Look back at Matthew 18. Notice that Christ's call, his, his call to salvation 
is not filled with harsh condemnation. It's not filled with steps that we have to perform to meet his standard. Jesus says, I came and I put all your sin on me. I came and I became your sacrifice. I came because I'm here to save what is lost. You don't deserve it. It is all by my love and my grace. You didn't ask for it, but I came anyway. You deserve the full penalty, but I'm taking that penalty on myself. You didn't endure the temptation. I endured the temptation. I endured the rejection. I endured the ridicule. I endured the pain. And I took the weight of all your sin on me. You want to know why I came as a baby? I came to seek and save that which is lost. He asked nothing for himself. He didn't promote himself. The Bible says he laid aside his rights and he endured the shame and he went to the cross with joy for you and for me, even though we didn't ask for it because he wanted to deliver us from the destruction that is on all of us. Everything about what he did shows God's love for us. And what makes it even more powerful is that we had done everything we could to offend him. I was thinking this week about the story of the prodigal son in Luke 15. How he was so full of himself. And he felt so entitled. And he decided that he was going to live for himself. He didn't want any discipline. He just wanted to take. And he took his father's money. And he went and he made a bunch of fake friends and squandered everything and lived for himself until the money ran out. And then all the friends ran out. And finally, he finds himself in a pigsty, which for a Jew was the height of impurity. And he's wishing as he watches the pigs feed themselves as they eat the corn and the grain that he's put out for them because it's the only job he can get. He sits there looking at the pigs, just totally jealous of them. I wish I had their food. And he says to himself, I need to go home and I need to beg my father to forgive me. And I need to ask him to take me on as a servant because there is no way in the world that he would ever restore me as a son. And and you know what? There's not even a guarantee that he'll talk to me, let alone let me be a slave in his house. And as he walks home, the regret of all his decisions and all his selfishness is weighing heavily on him. And he looks at his life And it's a picture of what we have done when we've lived in sin. He can't fathom that his father, day after day, has been standing in his house, scanning the horizon, looking for any sign of his son, willing to forgive him, willing to restore him, wanting to free him from his old life and give him a new one. And when he finally sees that figure of his son and he knows that it's him, the Bible says that he ran to him and embraced him. And he says, this son of mine was dead and now he has come to life again. He was lost and now he is found. And 
and I thought, what a picture of what Jesus did. He came to seek and save that which is lost. Every one of us is lost. Every one of us, by our human nature, has been lost. We have all sinned. We have all come short of the glory of God. There are no exceptions. All of us have lived for ourselves. All of us have believed the lie that we can do that and be eternally justified and content. But very quickly, like the prodigal son, we see that there's no way that that's true. And God's love is such and his forgiveness is such that when we turn from that life and we seek his forgiveness, he quickly moves to save us. He quickly moves to restore us and to give us a new life. Jesus is living proof of that. He's living proof of that. He came to us. Lost, without hope, aimless, no confidence, no security, no future, no eternity. And he says, I'll give you salvation you don't deserve. And I'll do it because I love you. The night Jesus was born, the angel said to the shepherds, you don't need to be fearful anymore. Because this is good news of great joy, and it's for everybody. There's a Savior that's been born. His name is Jesus Christ, and he's the Lord. And you'll find him like a baby. You won't believe it that that's the Savior, but he's a baby. And he's come to save people from their sin. And he has come to bring hope to mankind. And he has come to bring peace to those who trust him. That's the hope of the season. That's why we drove through the snow this morning. So we could celebrate the eternal deliverance that Christ provides and new life. There's no hope without him. But there is absolute eternal assurance when we trust him. Aren't you glad for that this morning? Aren't you glad God has done this? Let's close our eyes. If you're here this morning and you've never heard this message before, you've never understood that Christ came to die for you, that Christ came to save you. I don't want to leave this place this morning without telling you that right where you sit right now, you can say to God, God, I want to turn from this life I'm living and I want to trust in you to save me. I'm asking you to forgive me of my sins and cleanse me. And save me as your child forever. You can do that right where you sit. I did it in 1974 sitting in my dad's church. Never forget it. That day my life changed. And right now, December 22, your life can change. Your whole eternal future can change right now. But it requires putting aside your pride. And humbling yourself and saying, God, I'm wrong. I'm wrong. Please forgive me. Please save me. Please remove my sin. I want to offer you that opportunity this morning. Before you go, before we do the rest of our day and the rest of our week, today's the day where your life can change forever. And if you've done that or you want to learn more about it, 
I would love to talk to you after the service. Just come up and I'll sit with you. We'll talk about it. We'll pray. And you'll know the security and confidence that so many people in this room know that our sins are forgiven. Believer, the obstacles before us are getting bigger and bigger. Christ has delivered us from being lost. Now we need to live as those who are found. If we're allowing sin right now, if we're allowing our hearts to be tainted, we're walking in the old life and the new life at the same time. That doesn't work. It's time for us to step into the light and to walk as Christ walked, to honor him and how we live. I don't know if that applies to anybody in this room this morning. But if it does for you, I pray right now you go before the Lord and make your heart right with him and ask him to free you from the continued measure of bondage in your life as you've allowed sin to persist. Lord, we're grateful to you for new life. We're grateful that you have come to seek and save that which is lost. That's all of us, Lord. And the salvation that you provide, the salvation that you offer to all who believe is eternal. And we praise you for that this morning. We praise you for the gift of Jesus Christ who came humbly as a child and who lived and fulfilled the law and died and rose again to secure salvation forever. Lord, we praise you for that this morning. And we will praise you for that throughout this week as we remember and celebrate his birth. May this be a time of year, Lord, where our praise is effusive, where our hearts are drawn more and more to you every day, and where our love for you just deepens to levels we've never imagined. We thank you and praise you for this amazing gift. And Lord, we declare our love for you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.